I am seeing what I believe to be the relevant things. Let's dance. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey, and this week Steph's taking a quick break, but while she's away, I'm joined by a special guest, Jonathan Renink. Jonathan Renink is the creator of Inertia.js, and listeners of this show will know that that is increasingly one of my favorite frameworks and, frankly, just ways to build applications on the internet. Uh, Jonathan is also the creator of the Eloquent Performance Patterns course, which teaches the Eloquent ORM, which is the ORM in Laravel, but really digs into deep performance and database things, so really covering that back end as well. Uh, Jonathan also collaborated on the development of Tailwind CSS, a utility-first CSS framework, which Again, is something that I have uh, spoken of in very high terms on this podcast. And lastly, Jonathan currently runs his own SaaS business called Church Social. So really, uh, Jonathan is a bit of a quadruple threat covering back-end, front-end uh, design and entrepreneurship. So pretty much everything you want to see. And frankly, uh, I've been so impressed by the breadth and the depth of Jonathan's work and just the, the deep way that he is thinking about building applications. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have him on the show today. So without further ado, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Chris. That was a very kind introduction. And uh, yeah, it's awesome to be on the bike shed. I've been a longtime listener. And uh, as I've said to you, I really appreciate the support that you've given to my work over the years. So uh, yeah, it's awesome to be here. That's interesting. We're measuring it in years now, but uh, it's it's a very sincere thing for me. I think with Inertia, you've built something that is both very unique and sort of a, a special approach to how we build things, but it's also built from very familiar pieces and allows us to reuse just the deep amounts of knowledge that we have in, say, the Rails community or the Laravel community. But actually backing up just a little bit, because we're going we're gonna to dive deep on Inertia.js today. But for folks that are not as familiar or have only heard me sort of mention it in passing, there's a wonderful episode of Full Stack Radio where Jonathan and Adam Wathen talked about Inertia.js and I think gave a very good sort of foundational summary. So we'll link to that in the show notes in case anyone wants to dig in a little bit more. Uh, likewise, Jonathan has a really fantastic blog post called Server-Side Apps with Client-Side Rendering, which as far as I can tell is sort of the manifesto that began this whole journey for you. And I really love that you have done so much of the work in public and people can see sort of the history of how this idea has evolved and really crystallized into what now is a very production-ready framework and sort of way to build things. But I would love to hear right now, just for anyone who is not as familiar, and also just to hear how you sort of summarize it at this point in time. What's your introductory elevator pitch for uh, Inertia.js sound like in April 2021? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's kind of hard to answer this without unpacking a lot of different things. And I think you mentioning the uh, podcast with Adam, uh, I think that's good because it goes in a lot of the technical detail of kind of how Inertia works and kind of why I created it. But kind of the elevator pitch these days for when I talk to someone about it, it's generally, I explain it as a way of building modern web apps. And in particular, when I say modern, I mean web apps that have a lot of JavaScript. So frameworks like Vue or React or Svelte. So applications that are built using those tools. And kind of the key thing that Inertia offers is for you to develop these modern applications without having to first build an API. Sort of the way historically... If you ever wanted to use one of these modern web stacks like Vue or React or Svelte, you, you could use them within Laravel or Rails by inserting them into your Vue or into your Blade templates or your ERB templates. But it was kind of difficult if you ever wanted to turn it into a legitimate single page application. 
And anytime you would ask that question, if you go out on the internet and say, hey, you know, how do I, how do I build a, an SPA with, say, Vue and Laravel or React and Rails, the answer was always, well, you need to build an API. You need to build an API. That was always, you know, the missing piece. Because that's the way that everyone's kind of in the Jamstack sort of era that we're in. That's a way that everyone's building their applications that are kind of like these heavy client-side applications. And I totally get the need for those style apps and the place for those style apps. But I really missed kind of this this way that you could build an application with Rails or with Laravel where you could just literally spin up a new app, create some routes within your server-side framework, create some controllers, create some views, and have a working application you know, within minutes, really. Like you could have something, you could have something being displayed on the screen within minutes with these kind of classic monolith applications. And if you wanted to do the same thing, if you wanted to get an app up and running in minutes, with Viewer React as your, you know, completely client side SPA sort of scenario, it just wasn't possible because, you know, as soon as you say, well, in order to do that, you're going to need to have a, you know, a backend Rails or Laravel application, and then a client side Viewer React application, and then you're going to have to create this API that connects the two together. There's just a lot more work that goes into that. It's not only the work of actually creating the API. I find it's like just a lot of the decisions that come along with building an API. It's like, okay, what does the abstraction look like? Am I going to build it with REST or am I going to build it as a GraphQL API? And, and, you know, all the decisions that come along with designing and architecting that, which, you know, again, it has its place, but there's just something awesome about saying, here's a new route, here's the view that I want to render. And here's the data that I want that view to have and just go off and do it. And it's done. And I think, you know, some people ask me, well, with inertia, if you're not building an API, like well, what happens someday if you need an API and they, they kind of frame it like, well, you know, this is a terrible decision. You, you should be starting with an API. But for me, the reality is that so many of the web applications that I was building and that I've seen other people building is they had already made the decision not to use an API because they had already made the decision that they wanted to use Laravel as a monolith app that had their, their controllers and the routes and their views all within that and the same thing with Rails. So if you've made that decision to build a monolith app with Laravel or Rails, you've already made the decision to not build it with an API. I was kind of coming from the other way. It's like, I just want to build an app the way I've always built it in Laravel. And I don't want to have to build this API. Of course, there's times where you do need an API, which I think we're going to talk about maybe a little bit later if I don't ramble on too long, where it does make sense to have an API. But yeah, that's kind of the elevator pitch. I think maybe to kind of close off that thought is that I really, really enjoy having a tight coupling between my routes and and my data layer and my views, which again, I appreciate that that probably sounds like <clears throat> blasphemy in modern web development. But for me, I think it's so empowering when you say, hey, I have a controller that's giving me some data and I have a view that's rendering the data. And those two know about each other and those two depend on each other. You can work so fast because I'm not thinking, okay, well, I have this API endpoint that returns a user and that has their first name and their last name and their email. But I also need to think about in the situation in the future where I might need this attribute or that attribute or some other attribute and make sure I have all that figured out ahead of time or at least have a way to add it in later. And just kind of all that thinking that goes into designing an API, I just find that, you know, that adds a lot of overhead. And then maybe related to that also is the amount of times that you're rendering a view within your application 
that needs data from multiple different places. And, and to me, this is like one of the huge performance benefits that you get with a tool like Inertia is with say a REST API that, you know, GraphQL solves this, but with a REST API, you're often getting too much data for what you actually need for the page, or you're often making more, more than one HTTP request because you say, well, I need on this particular dashboard, I need some user information. So I have to hit the user endpoint. I need some, you know, maybe the, the latest product sales data. So I need to hit that endpoint. And you're kind of dealing with the, these performance issues that you get with a REST API that you, with inertia, you kind of don't have that problem because it's just going back to kind of like classic Laravel blade views or or Rails and ERB templates. Am I saying that right? Te- ERB template? Mm-hmm. You know, in the, in those situations, you say, well, if I need data from three different places, well, I'll just grab data from three different places and send it to the view. And that's fine. And I can do that in the most efficient way and just get just the data that I need specifically for that view. So anyway, that's some of, that's some of the thinking that kind of like drove me to build inertia and kind of some of the things that I was going for. And uh, it was kind of, yeah, it was, it was an evolution. It, it really came out of me using TurboLinks and really appreciating kind of the, what TurboLinks gave me, but uh, kind of taking it to that next step where it's like TurboLinks, except it's built with like the same sort of principles as TurboLinks, but built for modern client-side frameworks like Vue and React. Yeah, that definitely, that all feels um, very familiar to me. And in my experience, I've now worked with Inertia on a handful of projects, but in particular, I have uh, just a small personal app that I use to sort of manage different aspects of my life. And it's been sort of my playground for different technologies. And I've migrated it through a bunch of different versions where it used to just be a Rails app. And I was like, oh, no, the thing that I need to do to be on the cutting edge is to turn this into it's, it's a Rails app on the back end with an API. And then it's a React app that's separately deployed. But those two talk to each other. And what you were talking about of the the deep coupling. I think that coupling exists whether we you know, want it to or not. And so sort of embracing that and revisiting when I eventually migrated that application to use Inertia and sort of the, the client side stuff folded back into the core code base. Now deployments all go out in sync. And that turns out to actually be a really nice thing and a non-trivial thing to solve otherwise. As a developer of one on this particular project, the amount of complexity that was removed from the app when I when I switched it over to Inertia was amazing. I, I got to remove client-side routing. I got to remove client-side state management, which I think I was using Redux at the time. I got to remove some form helpers that I had. I think I, I might have been using Formic or React Useformer, any of those. But there's so many different little pieces that you end up cobbling together to make an application. And it, it was amazing to me as I moved to Inertia, where I was like, actually, I don't need any of those. And routes suddenly are defined in one place in Rails in the familiar way. But things like redirects all kind of work in it. It feels just like a Rails app, but with the extra abilities that a front end client side framework gives you when you want those, when you need those. But otherwise, it really does feel like I'm rendering just to an ERB template. It just happens to be that that template is rendering on the client side and is written in React or Svelte or whatever the front end framework is. But it really it, it almost feels like progressive enhancement. I'm, I'm sort of borrowing a term and it's not act, it's not actually applicable here, but it really feels like that. It's like, oh, it's a Rails app, but I just want to make it a little bit fancier. And Inertia does that in such a fantastic way, uh, which actually uh, pivoting just a bit there. As far as I can tell, there seems to be sort of an explosion of thinking in this space. There's a handful of frameworks, namely Laravel Livewire, uh, which is often paired with AlpineJS. Uh, Elixir uh, has Phoenix Live View. And then Rails has the Hotwire suite, uh, which is Turbo and Stimulus are the, the most pointed considerations. But interestingly, I think all of those frameworks, which I, I think are trying to provide a very similar experience, they tend to keep things on the server side. So using the Laravel Blade templates or the ERB in, in Rails, 
But you've taken the different approach to say, no, let's embrace this front end technology where it makes sense. And again, there's a lot of pieces that can fall out and I don't need the Redux and the React router and all of those things, but still use that client side framework to to be the rendering engine. And so I'm intrigued if you can talk a little bit more about that and that sort of trade off, because I, I think it really differentiates inertia and its approach. I personally found it to be fantastic, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your thinking on that. Yeah. The thing about modern websites and web apps in particular is it doesn't matter how you slice it, we need JavaScript. So if you disagree with me there, then everything I say from this point on will, will not make sense to you. But I think we can all agree that modern web apps need JavaScript. JavaScript is the programming language of the web, of the browser, that allows us to do whatever magical things that we want to do. And if you look at tools like Phoenix Live View, Laravel, Livewire, even the, the new Turbo stuff from the folks over at Basecamp, they all are embracing JavaScript in the same way. It's just, they're kind of framing it in a different way. I would say, especially with Livewire and uh, LiveView, they're almost creating like an abstraction between the server and the way you, you write things on the server and kind of the client side. And, and they're almost like hiding the JavaScript. And which is really, really cool. I think it's such a, an interesting thing to try to do. Whereas somebody who's not familiar with, with JavaScript and not familiar with Vue, React, and Svelte, they can go and do things, write server-side code that gets rendered server-side. And then there's some tooling that these libraries, some JavaScript that these libraries insert that allow you to do more interesting things, whatever those things, show a drop-down button or or drag and drop or validate a form or submit a form without actually submitting it fully to the server, but submit it over uh, XHR instead, all these kind of things, right? So, but the point is they're embracing JavaScript just in a different way. And same with Turbo, Turbo gives you a way to write JavaScript for an application that's mostly uh, has server-side rendered HTML. So I think it's important to just recognize that JavaScript is key in, in all these frameworks. We're, with inertia, it's the same sort of idea in that inertia wants to embrace that classic way of building applications using the classic server-side monolith application framework like Laravel or Rails. But the difference is it sort of acknowledges or embraces these existing client-side frameworks that have really grown in popularity. And the three, again, I keep mentioning them, they're Vue, React, or Svelte. Svelte being kind of like an up and coming one that's not not nearly as popular yet, but it seems to be gaining a lot of a lot of steam. So it's on it's on the rise. That's my long bet on, is Svelte. Yes. And people keep saying that. So anyway, inertia basically said, hey, we want to keep building server-side apps. We want to keep building monolith apps similar to these other tools, except what we're going to do is we're going to embrace the fact that there's this really, really amazing tooling that's been developed for the client side. And it just doubles down on that. So for me, the reason that I ended up here was because I, in my own SaaS application, it was a, a Laravel application that started with mostly blade views initially. And then over the years of building it, which has been many, many years, I've slowly added more and more view components within my app. And what initially the way I did it is those view components would just be inserted in as regular HTML tags in my server-side render templates. And, and then when the page renders, those view components would boot up and, and do whatever they need to do. 
So for me, when I was building Inertia, I had already sort of like fallen in love with Vue in particular and kind of having all the power of these client-side frameworks. And there is so much, there's so much there. It's not just Vue, React, and Svelte. It's all the amazing tooling that's available out there that you can add on top of it. And this is the thing I often tell people that Inertia isn't I, we say right on the homepage, like inertia isn't a framework. And the reason why I say that is because I don't want people to think of inertia as an alternative to view react and svelte. I, it's really, you know what? It's a better, a better way to frame it. It's actually more of an alternative to react router or view router. That's really more what it is where you can say, you know, all my routing is all handled server side and that has all kinds of interesting implications, but it, it's more of that. Like it's more of a router and it just so happens to pass along that routing control over to the server. Anyway, so that's really, for me, what differentiates Inertia from those other tools is because it's really kind of doubled down on these client-side frameworks. And I think the reason why Inertia has been relatively popular is because people know Vue and people know React. And, and when it comes to then working with Inertia, it's not some new thing that they have to learn. It's a kind of an existing set of tools that they're already super comfortable with. And in so many ways, when you're building an Inertia app, you're kind of building a classic Vue app or a classic React app or a classic Svelte app. It's just there's a bunch of pieces missing. Like you said, it's like a bunch of the client-side state management stuff, which nobody likes anyway, is gone. The other thing that's gone is client-side routing. You don't have this, you know, backend routing is over here now and client-side routing is over here. And I have like two different routing definitions. It's like, no, that's all just server-side now, one place. The other amazing thing you get, you mentioned redirects and the kind of that whole HTTP layer, you get kind of just along with Inertia for free because it's just part of your server-side stack. And, and one key aspect of that is auth. You can just use good old-fashioned nothing is better than session auth. Like it just works. And um, so kind of whatever your typical solution for doing session auth in Laravel or Rails or whatever server-side framework you're using, all this stuff just works. So anyway, yeah, again, coming full circle on your question, the reason why Inertia has gone this way is because I really think that there's a huge amount of value with using these modern frameworks and we just double down on using them. Yeah, that definitely that that resonates with my experiences using inertia and in contrast to the other frameworks, like everyone seems to be trying to get to the same place of providing a mechanism to have more almost app like functionality, but still using the traditional server side technologies. But I think inertia has chosen an approach to that that again, is sort of unique in that that category and really has provided a fantastic outcome. I've been very, frankly, surprised by the fidelity of experience and how app-like I can get something to feel when building with Inertia while still using all the same technologies. And again, like the fact that I can use just traditional server-side auth and redirects and things like that is just so nice. And it just, everything feels right. There's an experience that I've had on many applications that are, say, a React client-side bundle that gets sent down and then boots up and then the layout starts to render. And as it's data fetching, it gets like a 402 response or something like that in that data fetching. And then it's like, oh no, I need to hard redirect you over here on the client side to this other page. And there's this jank of semi filled out layout. And then suddenly you're on the, the login page. And again, with inertia, like everything just kind of, it looks like a normal server side rendered app, but it isn't in the ways that really matter to us. And uh, it is one of those things where the more I played with it, the more it, there's sort of a an experience of interacting with inertia that uh, it's it surprises me consistently how nice it is to work with it. And yet, it's so much easier to maintain an application using it. I know I'm, I'm raving here, but I'm really a big fan <laughs> of this, everyone listening in the audience. 
But actually, to continue on with one of the things that you were saying there, one of the things that stands out to me in Inertia is the way that it sort of embraces URLs. And to a certain degree, this seems like a purposeful thing, but it also seems like it sort of just naturally falls out of how Inertia works because we're no longer using a client-side state management technology. The way to manipulate state is through the URL. If you want to see a different version of the to-do list you're looking at, when you click on that link, you change the URL and the state changes in response to that. And so everything is fundamentally kept in sync, but URLs are very much at the center of the architecture. And I really love that so much. I think URLs are often forgotten in client-side frameworks or underserved or underused. And it turns out, in my experience as a user and both having served many users, people love to command-click on links. They love to right-click, open a new tab. They love to be able to reload and see the same thing on the screen when they reload the page. They love to be able to bookmark. These are all really wonderful things that come out of working on the web. And the fact that Inertia uh, sort of has a pit of success around having URLs and have that be the way that we drive state is just so fantastic. So I'm wondering how much of that was very purposeful on your part versus how much of that is just it sort of fell out of the architecture. Yeah, that's a, you know, that is very much something that fell out of the architecture. Like, I I think I I say that not to say that I don't value URLs. I absolutely did. That's the way every single one of my Laravel built apps worked. It always starts, it always starts in the route file. You hit the route file, you define a new route and it goes from there. So I absolutely think that the URLs are kind of critical, but the fact that it just ended up working out so nicely was yeah, I'm going to say it was a bit of luck, a bit of coincidence. And, you know, this is, I find this is what's so interesting when you start kind of like pushing on kind of a new way of doing things, you initially don't really know where it's going to end. Like, it's kind of like you have some ideas of where the tool, how it can work and where it might go. But I think there's a lot of like just unknowns that you kind of just figure out after a while. So, you know, the thing I said earlier, actually, about the fact that inertia in a lot of ways is just, uh, it's kind of like a client side router, right? It's a routing library, put it that way. Like I had been working on inertia for like a year and a half. And then a buddy of mine, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, him and I were chatting. And he said to me at one point, he's like, oh, you know what? Inertia is actually super simple. It's, it's really just a, a routing library. And it was like, bing, like it was kind of that moment. It's like, Oh yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that at all. But when he said that, it like it made a ton of sense to me. So it's it's just this interesting progression, kind of the way the more you work on something and the more you kind of push on the edges, you kind of learn what's possible and, and kind of what it even is. I had this interesting experience. Uh, so remembering that kind of inertia came from TurboLink. So I had my whole app built with Laravel, ton of like server-side render templates with Blade, with Vue mixed in. And I kind of had the SPA mode by clicking around, you know, using TurboLinks. So when I decided to try building Inertia, where I removed TurboLinks and all these requests now happen over XHR, but kind of using this preset JSON structure that kind of powers Inertia, I really, in my mind, kind of just had this idea that it was only for GET requests, for GET visits. It was like just for that. So like the initial version of inertia, there was no like inertia.post or inertia.put or anything like that. It just wasn't something I even thought was possible. But then I remember, and this is often how it goes, I was out for a hike that day, you know, get away from the computer for a little while and just let your brain kind of like drift, right? I'm sure you can relate to that. I was like, wait a minute, I could totally just support, you know, post, put, patch, delete. 
And that was like such a like aha moment for me where I just realized that it was so much more than kind of what I originally thought it was. And then, and then the whole thing like from that, I remember that kind of like, there was a bit of like a, uh, waterfall effect after that, where it was like, I, I remember running home out on that hike and like hacked it together. And, and then it was like, okay, well, if I submit a form using post, I'm like, well, okay, I'm on the, I'm on the create user page and I submit this form using inertia.post, uh, to the user's endpoint. I'm like, well, how do I now end up back at the user index page or whatever page, maybe the user edit page. And I'm like, wait a minute, I can just return a redirect back to the user index page. And it's literally going to return an inertia response from the user index page. And then the way inertia does works, it, it, it dynamically swaps the page component client side. And it was just like, ah, it was like, this is way too cool. But yeah, like all kind of, and this really drives my thinking now that it's become a little bit more clear to me is that it really, it's all based on like HTTP using headers and, and just kind of like normal, just HTTP stuff like redirects, like are such a critical piece of the story. But to me, that's like super neat that in a way it's kind of like a throwback to like, just kind of like the fundamentals of the web and the browser and the fact that inertia can just use those things. And it doesn't have to be like fancy in a lot of the ways it can just kind of like rely on those, th those existing core kind of pieces of the browser. So yeah. Uh, it really is interesting to me how it, it feels like progressive enhancement in that way, where like you're building on top of these core fundamentals of HTTP and requests and redirects and status codes and, and things of that nature. Uh, actually, particularly interesting to me was uh, my, it took me a while, I'm going to be honest, to figure out forms and particularly validation errors in inertia. And that is entirely my fault. You have absolutely fantastic documentation. I am so impressed by the quality and the sort of density of the documentation that you have that really covers everything. I just, if we're being honest, hadn't read the page. Uh, but I was doing form posting and then the subsequent errors and how do you deal with that? I was doing it in a very traditional Rails way, which if we're being honest, that is not a fundamental of like how HTTP works. Rails just shows an option of, oh, if you post, but we don't create the object because there's a validation error, then we're going to stay on the URL of the post, so the collection route, but we're going to re-render the form in line. And that's a choice that Rails made that is interesting because at that point, if a user reloads the page, then things are weird and it's not going to reload. They're not going to see the same thing after that reload or it's going to try to repost or et cetera, et cetera. There's a bunch of edge cases there that sort of fall out. Whereas with inertia, you end up redirecting back and there's this interesting sort of uh, handshake of the errors. But from an end user experience, it is absolutely fantastic where you stay on the form. The URL does not change. Technically, there's like a post and a redirect back under the hood, but inertia just handles all of that for you. And you end up with sort of inline validation errors but you don't clear out any fields and there's just wonderful things that fall out of it that again, took me a while to get there, but it was another one of those like, oh, wow, I, yeah, this just sort of naturally falls out of the architecture, but it's so nice and such a nice incremental advance uh, on top of, frankly, the stuff that I was doing in Rails historically. Yeah, that actually, so the way that Laravel works and it's always worked this way is when you make a request using post or patch or delete or whatever to an endpoint and that endpoint does its validation in the event that that validation fails, this is just like built-in standard like Laravel stock behavior. It automatically redirects you back to the endpoint that you were on. So if you're on the create page or the edit page, it automatically redirects. That's just like standard Laravel behavior. And what it does is it takes those errors that 
come out of the validator. It, it, it flashes them to the session. And then when the page that the form page reloads, you have those errors available to you in the session. Now, of course, if you're building like a classic server-side rendered application and you redirect now back to your form, you have to repopulate old form inputs, you know, which is not a lot of fun, which you don't have any of that stuff with inertia because inertia allows you to preserve your state. But anyway, that's a separate thing. But yeah, that's like, for me, it's kind of like this is, you kind of build a tool a little bit like in your own silo and kind of the world that you know. And for me, that's Laravel. But there's also like ideas that you get that are really kind of just come from the tooling that you use. And the fact that Taylor Otwell made that decision in Laravel at one point is absolutely what now dictates how is it's like kind of the go-to way to do it in, in inertia just because it works so nicely. I wonder if there's been any consideration in the Rails world to adopt that because I think it, it from an experience perspective, it feels like it's a better sort of thing. And it feels like it has the same robustness and, and guarantees that I would expect. But um, yeah, that's interesting. It, it makes sense that that was just sort of naturally there. Because again, it, it didn't feel like a the obvious correct thing that Rails was doing. It was always a little bit odd. And uh, so interesting that Laravel was already there. But then Inertia can take it that one step further. But taking a slightly like higher level view of all of this, one of the things that's really interesting about Inertia to me uh, especially in contrast to some of the other frameworks that we've been talking about, like the live wires and the live views, is inertia is almost at its core a protocol more than it is. It's a sum of pieces. And with inertia, you have a server side adapter. So there's the Rails adapter and the Laravel adapter. And then on the client side, you have a separate uh, either view or React or Svelte. But I've also seen that there's sort of been, so those are the officially supported ones on both sides, but there's also been a swell of community support. And so there's a Django one, which I'm not sure if it's currently maintained, but I just saw a Clojure one the other day. There's a Java Spring Boot. So those are all server-side adapters. Uh, I haven't seen as much on the client side, but I imagine there's at least a handful of them out there. And it's so interesting to me that there's this core idea that you define, this, this protocol of communicating back and forth from the server to the client. And now this sort of uh, collection of things that are that are growing around that. And I wonder, again, how much was that purposeful versus how much did that just sort of happen? And then further, to add a second question to complicate things, how are you thinking about sort of managing that community? Because my sense is that this could allow for inertia to be so much of a bigger tent and really bring in the best ideas from all of these different communities and end up with something at the core, this inertia thing that is the best of every community and all of that. So yeah, a lot of question there, but I'll hand it over to you because I'm super interested. Yeah. So I think when I first got going, it was Laravel and Vue. Those were the tools that I worked with. And there was this, you know, you build, I often the best software and the best open source software in my mind comes out of trying to solve something for your own needs. So that's, that's really where inertia came from and specifically for Laravel and Vue. But I, I kind of quickly realized early on that it didn't have to be just a Vue and Laravel thing. So I kind of intentionally early on had this idea of trying to build it with multiple adapters. So, and I had this idea that, you know, you could build as many server-side adapters as you want and as many client-side adapters as you want, and maybe we'll officially maintain a certain amount of those, um, and which is what we do right now. We officially maintain the Vue, the React, the Svelte adapters, and then we also maintain officially the, and the Laravel and the Rails server-side adapters. So that, that was, you know, kind of, I would say pretty intentional and it's crazy how many server-side adapters people have been able to put together. Somebody wrote a cold fusion server-side adapter for inertia. I had no idea cold fusion was even a thing anymore. Yeah, legit. There's node ones, there's Phoenix ones. 
if you can believe it, there's a WordPress one, which I'm not even totally sure even how that works, but there is ASP.net. <laughs> there's like, there's a whole bunch of, yeah, it's really, and it's, it's actually in despite of me, not because of me that this has happened because I have, I am yet to write a good, here's how to build an inertia server-side adapter in the language and framework of your choice guide. It's been on my to-do list. Uh, you know, I have a bunch of things I want to do, so it's still something I want to write. But people, what they're doing is they're just reverse engineering what we're doing in Laravel and Rails and these other adapters, and they're figuring out how to do it in their own server-side language and framework. So that's been really, really cool. On the flip side, on the client side, I'm starting to realize more and more that that's actually where the the most important work for us as the maintainers of inertia we, that we need to focus our efforts because it's non-trivial to create these server side or sorry, these client side adapters. Um, and so that's, that's to, and for, for us, we actually have four of them now because we have react and Svelte, but then we have view two and view three, and they're different enough, those frameworks that we actually had to create a separate adapter. So that's really where all our work is. The, the core of inertia is actually ridiculously short. Like the whole file, like the whole core inertia adapter is like 150 to 200 lines of code. And maybe it's a bit more than that now. It was that for a long time. It might be it might be three or 400 now. So it's very short. Even honestly, the client-side adapters are pretty short too. It's just that it's more difficult to make these client-side adapters because you got to learn like all the intricacies of how each one of these frameworks, you know, handles the rendering. The core behavior that Inertia uses is the fact that you can dynamically swap components. So we dynamically swap page components when you visit from one page to the next and kind of the, the, the details that come along with that. Anyway, so we, I've kind of realized that moving forward, my job is going to be to make sure that the client side adapters are awesome. Um, and then letting the community drive the server side adapters a little bit more and providing some better guides kind of on how to do that. But yeah, for now, by maintaining the, it's sort of like if we can get it working in Laravel and Rails, then I feel like it should be able to be, you know, it sh we should be able to get that functionality working in in any server side adapter. And and because it's all again so just based on HTTP, HTTP, um, that's the language. That's ultimately the that's the protocol. Like you say, that's the thing that matters between all these these web frameworks, which they all of course support since the web frameworks. So. I think you're uh, you're not giving yourself nearly enough credit for the support that you've given to the server side frameworks because you do actually have a page in the documentation called the protocol that does I think a great job of at least summarizing it at that HTTP level. But at the end of the day, again, like the job of someone implementing it is to then map that into their given language and framework of choice. Um, but yeah, the, again, the documentation is uh, impressive in just how much you put in there and how much care you obviously put into it and. Lots of nice, subtle details that are covered uh, very well in that. So that, again, <laughs> if you read it, unlike me, uh, then you get to know everything. Eventually, I got there. I think I've read the whole thing now, but uh, there's a lot there. And you cover all of the details. Um, but actually, yeah, looping back to a topic that you sort of hinted at earlier, but this is something that I've uh, been pressing up against lately, is I absolutely love building web apps in Inertia. But there's often the need to bring in a mobile app. And we want native mobile for various reasons. Uh, I'm, I love the idea of progressive web apps. And I want to push that envelope as much as I can. But uh, as an example right now, uh, iOS does not support push notifications to PWAs. So if that's a key feature that we want, then we're sort of dead in the water. Or if there's certain like GPS things, there are, there are a bunch of true platform native things that we just can't get. And so I'm now contemplating building out an app alongside my inertia web stuff, but I want to build, say, a React Native app. And I'm wondering, 
to a certain degree, does this invalidate some of my ideas? I know you hinted at this earlier, but I'm I'm now I think I'm still convinced of the utility of inertia on the web. But I think I need a different paradigm to build for a mobile app. And I'm trying to decide where that line falls. I'm also wondering if I can just get away with embedding a bunch of web views and reusing my web logic. Because again, like if I'm building all of this, I'm going to build it in a mobile responsive way. I don't want to rebuild the core page functionality of my app again, just to put it on mobile. Maybe, maybe mobile folks would tell me I'm, I'm wrong there, but I'm interested in maybe wrapping it and getting access to those platform features. But yeah, I'm interested what your thoughts are there. Well, uh, embedding in uh, a web view within uh, a native app is, uh, well, that's been proven to work. <laughs> just ask DHH, obviously. But yeah, there are definitely people who disagree with that approach and feel like you should build a legitimately native app. Let's say that you go, no, we're going to legitimately build a real native app. We want to have an Android and iOS app, right? So I actually ran into this myself in my own uh, for my own SaaS application. And I solved it by building a native app using React Native. So my I have a React. So <laughs> React Native obviously being an abstraction on top of iOS and Android and kind of all the tooling there, which is it's such an amazing an amazing platform. It was just a real joy to work with. And I don't even hardly work with React. And I was able to, to get a, a nice, high quality, native feeling app built relatively easily. But I had to, I had to kind of come to grips with this very question because like I've been saying all along, like, okay, inertia is great because you don't need to build a, an, an API. You know, yay, this is amazing. This is what you should do. Oh crap, I need an API. And it was kind of like, I had those questions like, okay, well, is does this invalidate everything that I've been doing? So I, I, I was thinking about it. And in the end, what I did is I just built a light API alongside my inertia application. So what it is, is I think I have seven endpoints and they're just rest endpoints that are designed specifically for my native app. And this works honestly so well. And I think I've explained to you a little bit in previous conversation, but I'll, so I'll repeat myself a little bit here for the benefit of the listeners. The reason why I think it's completely le legitimate to have inertia and build your entire web app that way, and then have a sort of a, a companion API alongside it in the same monolith app. Let's be clear. It's in the same application. It's in my Laravel app, or it would be in your rails application is because it kind of just extends a core principle for me of what inertia is. And that core principle is a tight coupling between my data layer, so my controllers, and my views. So if we take that thinking where we say, well, inertia and inertia in an inertia web app, when we have an endpoint, we we hit the controller, we load data from the database, we pass that very specific data to the view, which is viewer or reactors felt, and it renders it. And there's a very tight coupling between the two. And I treated my native app in the exact same way. I said, okay, I, I, I need an API because obviously the native app on iOS and Android has to make an HTTP request to get this data somehow. But instead of trying to create this super generalized API that could theoretically be used for anything, I used the same principle. I said, I'm going to allow myself to create an API that has a really tight coupling between the, the screens in my native apps and the actual data that's coming from those API endpoints. And this worked out really, really, really well. I don't have to deal with like a lot of the issues that you run into when trying to create a, a more generalized API um, because I could just say, hey, I have this 
calendar page. And I want that calendar page in my particular app. I want it to show you know, people's birthdays and I want it to show anniversary, wedding anniversaries. And I want it to show custom events and these things that we have called schedule reminders. So it's data from four different endpoints. I didn't try to say, well, I'm going to go and create now my events endpoint and my birthdays endpoint and my anniversaries endpoint and my schedule reminders endpoint and, and now have all that like work to do in my native app to like, okay, we'll hit all these different endpoints and like merge it all together. And it wasn't like that at all. I created a calendar endpoint that returned all the data that needed for that screen. And I basically applied that thinking through my whole native app. And it was really a joy to work this way. So I think that approach works really well if you have a new app that doesn't have complete feature parity with your web app. And I think if you had a, a native app that needed absolute feature parity between the native app and the web app, um, then my thinking might be a little bit different on this. But in my experience, so often native apps have a vastly reduced subset of the features that the web app has. In particular, even if not for the core functionality of the application, but just for the administrative side of the, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you tend to have in a web app around administrative stuff that you literally never need. And I mean like administrative, both in terms of like the, you know, if it's a multi-tenant style app, which most, most apps are. So in terms of like the user's administrative functionality and in terms of like the system level, the software owner uh, administration, if you build your whole web app to require like to be built on top of an API, all that administrative stuff that really doesn't need to exist in both places, you now have to make it exist in your API because you've made that decision to build it that way. Whereas if you just stick with inertia on the web and just kind of build it again, using kind of that classic monolith way where you get data from your controls and send it to your blade views or in the, in this situation, client side page views, and then you just expose the stuff that you actually need natively. For me personally, it's worked out so well. And if, if I look at my own web app, actually, like the amount of controllers that I have for like for the whole web app, I have like a hundred. It's a very big app. And for my native app, I have about 10. So that was kind of like really like, I'm like, I'm so glad that I didn't have to create a hundred of these in both places. It was, and then some people would be like, you might be thinking, well, now I have duplication. I have duplication in some of my API endpoints and my web endpoints. And that's true. I would say first to that, duplication isn't always a bad thing. I think more duplication in our app, our web apps would actually probably lead. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we run away from duplication too quickly. I don't think duplication is as bad as uh, software developers often think it is. But like even then, if the duplication really, like if you can't live with yourself, there's still ways to solve duplication. So Laravel, for instance, has this concept of, they're called API resources, which is basically, they're essentially transformers. You give it some models and it transforms that model into you know some other state, some other design. So there's nothing stopping you. And I even did this myself within my server-side application within Laravel to have an API resource, to have a transformer that's used by both my inertia controller and my API controller in a couple of situations, if, and for me only when it makes sense, I'm not going to do it all the time because I found that most often I, I wanted the data in a slightly different format in my native apps than I'd wanted in my web app. So quite often that didn't happen. So, but I'm just saying, if you're scared of duplication, there's totally ways to solve it. And we can solve this in our existing frameworks. Laravel Rails has ways to allow us to abstract some of that stuff and reuse it in multiple places. So yeah, that's my long-winded answer to like kind of how I've approached doing the native apps 
sort of thing. I think that tight coupling between the data and the screen. So I think that's like a really a nice thing. It, you just can build faster. And just like you can build faster with inertia on the website, you can build fast, fast side. Uh, frankly, that answer makes a ton of sense. One and two makes me feel better about the path that I'm on. Because again, I'm I'm really desperate to cling to inertia for the website of things. So I love what you're saying. And and again, it really resonates uh, with me and sort of how you're thinking about building. There's also uh, I really appreciate a sort of sun. It's also a subtle uh, common theme that I've seen in a bunch of things that you've said where you're like, let me poke at best practices a bit and see what falls out. Let me, uh, what if we were to actually embrace the coupling between our data and our view layer? And it's like, actually, some really nice things happen there. And actually, going back to an earlier project that you worked on, Tailwind CSS is one of those projects that when you first see it, you're like, well, that's obviously wrong. That's definitely an incorrect way to do things. But then you explore it and you're like, well, I mean, I know there are trade-offs here, but actually, and, and my experience, and I'm sure your experience, Tailwind is absolutely fantastic. And the trade-offs, you totally win in the long game and it's maintainable and it's understandable and you can continue to develop on top of it in a way that I've never found with any other CSS framework. But again, first glance, you're like, oh, that's that's not right. That can't be right. 100%, exactly. I Yeah, I, I think it's fun to push back and just experiment with different things. And I don't know, I guess for me, like I'm always... Yeah, I think a lot of my decisions too come back to the fact that I'm running a SaaS application as one person and I need to be able to move fast. I need, you know, I, I really, I don't want to have two different servers and two different repos. I like, I want to be able to like build my applications as fast as I can as a, as a single developer, a, a single founder, you know? And so I think a lot of my, the things that I push against and try and experiment with come out of me trying to find the simplest ways to kind of maintain things. So that's, you know, um, Tailwind is like, that's really like Adam's, that's brain, his brainchild. Um, I came along kind of in the first number, you know, six, six months or so me and him built it. I was really just kind of helping him flush out his idea there. And that was super fun. But yeah, like I had the exact same experience as you. It's like, Adam was telling me about this. Like, I'm like, ah, that sounds pretty terrible. Like I kind of have CSS figured out already. And then it was like, oh man, this is amazing. Fun little fact, my my SaaS app, me and him were both working on uh, web apps at that time. So me and like my SaaS app was one of the, uh, one of, you know, the first Tailwind applications ever because me and Adam were literally both building our own apps while building Tailwind CSS. But anyway, so yeah, it, it comes out of not me trying to be like, I know better than other people. It's not that at all. It's more just, I, I'm trying to find a way to survive as a business and trying to build at the same time, not only survive, but also like, I want to build awesome products. I don't want to build software that is just kind of okay. Like I, I love striving to make software that's just exceptional, that delights people that, you know, it just works the way someone expects it to work. And I just think that there's so much broken software out there. There's just like, it's just, there's just a lot of bad software and, and don't get me wrong. I've created a lot of bad software too, but I, I really try to kind of like hold myself to a high standard. And really for me, that comes down to not necessarily what some purist says that this is how you need to do it. Um, it comes more down to like, okay, let me see the results. Like how fast is a web page open? You know, what's the, what's the performance? Uh, you mentioned my course earlier. I, like I'm really, really interested in database performance and how to use databases more intelligently to deliver really fast web applications. And that matters to me because customers hate waiting. They hate it. They, you know, so that's, 
And that was even part of what drove me to create inertia because I, I hated this. We had built, I was working for a company. We had built it kind of the, the right way where we have an API and the client separate. And we kind of went down that road and that was a big team. We had 10 to, sorry, it was 20 to 30 developers in the end. And I was just like, we were, I shouldn't say I wasn't, we in general were not happy with what happened because just the way that the app was built and, and the way that single views were hitting the API, like and you could probably argue that this was like, we were doing something wrong, but the paradigm didn't lend us to doing it right. In my opinion. So we were, we'd have pages that were hitting this, this, the rest API with, you know, sometimes 10, 20 HTTP requests just to get the data. And you're dealing with all the loading states of all this stuff. And of course, you know, there was probably better ways to design, but we were trying to ship a product there too. We were trying to, you know, get it out the door and make happy customers. And I just, yeah, I didn't feel like that way was, was helping us. I think GraphQL just as an aside is a huge step forward, a huge step forward where you can say, Hey, here's all my data in an API, but I'm, you're not, I'm just not, I'm not going to hit the user's endpoint and just get back whatever you decide to give me. Like I can be much more intentional about saying, Hey, I want this data and then pulling this relationship for that data and this other piece of data. And I think that's really, really cool. But I think the problem there again is you need to build that GraphQL API. And there's, that's not, that's non-trivial, you know, it's a, not to mention, you probably have to figure out OAuth, which is pretty much always a game stopper for me. Because I, if I never have to use, work with OAuth in my life, I'm, I, <laughs> I'd be totally okay with that. I, I know OAuth has its place, but uh, yeah. There's a clear passion and a, and sort of a, a desire that you're describing there to just build good things and the belief that it can be done. And then uh, as someone who has really benefited from your work, I, I thank you for carrying that torch and for pushing the envelope. And uh, like you said, having that high standard and holding yourself to it, but then hopefully bringing the rest of us along. And uh, I really appreciate that. But I think with that, that's probably a perfect time to wrap up. If folks want to follow more of what you are working on, uh, where can where can they find what you're up to on the Internet? Yeah, I am on Twitter, kind of the, the classic place to go for uh, following someone in tech. So uh, twitter.com slash Renink, my last name, that's R-E-I-N-I-N-K. So that's kind of where I, you know, even if I have stuff shared elsewhere on the web, that's kind of where it starts. Perfect. We'll include links to your Twitter as well as everything else that we've mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So if folks do want to keep up or investigate further listening to that other uh, podcast episode that I mentioned, we'll, we'll have all of that available. But with that, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, again, really appreciate you joining. Thanks so much, Chris. Pleasure to be here. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed on Twitter, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey, or you can email hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.